Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Who we are and where we come from is a crucial question that now we are more able to answer than ever before. The examination and analysis of our individual DNA, in addition to answering a myriad of medical and forensic secrets about ourselves, also reveals the mix of our individual ancestors and the paths they took. This analysis provides significant and untold information about who we are, from where we came, and how we may connect with our ancestors. Dr. Alondra Nelson, the Dean of Social Science and a Professor of Sociology and Gender Studies at Columbia University in New York City, is our guest in this edition of Radio Curious. Professor Nelson is the author of The Social Life of DNA, Race, Reparations, and Reconciliation After the Genome. She's also the author of Body and Soul, which she and I have previously discussed here on Radio Curious. To discuss the social life of DNA, Professor Nelson and I visited by phone from her office in New York City on February 19, 2016. We began by noting that although human beings are all members of the human race, people are grouped by skin color and or facial features and are characterized as being of a different race. We are all homo sapiens. We look differently. We have different hair textures and skin colors and eye color. But there's no necessary reason why that has to mean different hierarchies or different kinds of social statuses. And so when particularly social scientists talk about race being a social construction, certainly what we're trying to get at is that the way that we look, although it's different from one another, each of us individually, the meanings that we give to those could be lots of different meanings. And the fact that um, over human history, the meaning of that difference has meant racial hierarchies, has meant justifications for one group to oppress another, one group to make assumptions about another is not a natural thing. And so that's where the social construction piece comes into it. Uh, With regard to ethnicity, you know, I think there are debates about whether ethnicity is a category that's like race. Um, That's a kind of essentialist category about innate difference, but that is more on a cultural sort of valence, or whether ethnicity is about culture and foodways and mores or something in between. What was interesting in my research around genetic ancestry testing has been the highlighting of the fact that all American social groups don't have access or haven't historically had access to ethnicity as a social identity. So one of the reasons I suggest that genetic ancestry testing is so popular, particularly among African Americans, is because African Americans as a large community, haven't had access to ethnic identities. At the beginning of your book, you tell the story of Venture Smith, a man who lived between 1729 and 1805. And you present the question, why is DNA analysis deemed to pro-offer 
more valuable and reliable information about a man's familial history than his own words. The Venture Smith story is fascinating because it's one of the very few what we call slave narratives, which are stories, biographies, autobiographies written by formerly enslaved people, often about their sort of flight uh, or their manumission out of slavery. And in the Venture Smith case, unlike most of this small group of slave narratives that we have been able to recover, he talks about his life on the African continent. He talks about his village and his family. He talks about what's called the Middle Passage, the the journey from the west coast of Africa, in his case, to New England. Ultimately, he lived and died in colonial Connecticut. And so we know his whole story. And part of one of the aims, often, of root-seeking, be it the kind of Alex Haley version of the 70s or the 21st century version, is that African Americans want access to information about their time before the Middle Passage. Who were their people before... Uh, They were brought to the Americas as part of the transatlantic slave trade. So Venture Smith is an interesting case because several years ago there's a research effort to exhume his body and do genetic analysis on his body to effectively find out where he comes from. And yet Venture Smith has already told us where he comes from in his own words, translated perhaps by someone who helped to help him to write this, but mostly uh, I think we can say his own in full accounting. And moreover, historians tell us that the story is remarkable because it's one of the few slave narratives that we have that go back to life on the African continent. So we know more about Venture Smith than we know about lots of people, even including famous historical figures of this period. So it was curious to me during the research, why do we need to do genetic analysis on his remains if we have all of this information? And so part of the answer to that question for me is twofold. One is about what I call the social power of DNA, that DNA has more ability to give us a scientific, unbiased, and I'm putting these in quotes, truth than one's own stories. In a moment of biotechnology, and uh, we live in a very technological, scientifically advanced society, one might understand why we would turn to science to answer these questions. Another answer came from talking to the descendants of Venture Smith who know each other, who have a very rich family tree and get together for an annual family reunion at his gravesite in Connecticut. And they were saying when asked, why do you want to do this genetic analysis, given that you know already all of this information about this very now famous ancestor? And one of his descendants says, well, we want to help educate the American public and the school children about his experience. And another says, I hope that it can bring healing. To me, these answers struck a chord, that it was on the one hand, this genetic uh, analysis of his remains, about our overinvestment and the power of genetics and DNA, on the one hand. But on the other hand, on our emotional investment and our yearning for DNA, as the symbol of truth, to be able to answer some fundamental questions about justice, about racial reconciliation, and about healing. Staying with Venture Smith for a minute, what different information became available with the DNA analysis of Venture Smith as compared to his personal narrative of his life and his ancestry? Well, the Venture Smith case is a curious one because this endeavor fundamentally fails, in fact. 
because his remains are degraded so much so that even with today's advanced technology, there wasn't enough biological evidence remaining that they could sample it and amplify it and analyze it. I garner this from your book, that the one of the goals of the genetic analysis is uh, to look back and restore the pre-enslavement identity and the biology and how things shifted through the uh, cultural transitions. This is an extension, I think, of the Venture Smith story as to how that's done, Uh, the restoration of the pre-enslavement identity compared to where a person is in their station in life who has ancestry from the continent of Africa, but not being able to pinpoint it as to which part of this vast continent. That's the key question. And as a researcher, I had been personally reconciled with that just being the case. I know I am of African descent, and that's okay with me. In the course of doing my research, interviewing genealogists, going to genealogy societies and conventions, going to history conferences, I met a great deal of people who were unlike me, and I realized I was an outlier who really felt like they deserved to know and wanted to know as specific as they could possibly get about their specific African ancestry, their specific African heritage at a specific place in a specific language group in a specific community or nation state. And part of that goes back to the ethnicity piece that we were talking about. So if we can think by comparison of the experiences of other people in the United States or any other societies that are comprised of people who migrate from other places, which are most communities uh, these days. But in the United States, we're a country of Americans, all one Americans, but also of many hyphenated identities. And we celebrate being Italian-American and German-American and uh, Irish-American. And we celebrate this in holidays, and we celebrate this foodways, and we celebrate these with flags and things that we might wear and these sorts of things. So the difference for African Americans is that Africa, as you said, is a large continent. It's a continent that contains dozens of countries, hundreds of ethnic groups, hundreds of languages and dialects. So African American is not an ethnic identity, but a vague to some continental identity. And so what the genetic ancestry testing offers is the ability for people of African descent through the inferences that they receive from companies like the African Ancestry Company to say, I'm not only African-American, I'm also Nigerian-American or I'm Ghanaian-American. It restores ethnicity to African-Americans that was removed from black people as part of the slave trade. So I write about the historian, uh, Michael Gomez, who helps us to remember that because people for the transatlantic slave trade were bought, brought often from all over the continent of Africa, they practiced different religions, they spoke different languages, they were from different tribal groups, ethnic groups, historical experiences. But through the process of the Middle Passage, they all become enslaved men and women, and they all become, frankly, just black. They take on a kind of racial and caste identity when the system of slavery commences that by mandate strips away all of these particular ethnic ways of being and ways of knowing about oneself. And as generations go forward, a lot of this information is lost within families and groups and the like. And so part of what one might say is that one of the the losses or the traumas of transatlantic slavery is the loss of those specific ethnic identities 
And part of what uh, some of the people I spoke to seek to do is to restore those identities through the use of genetic analysis. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Professor Alondra Nelson, the Dean of the Social Science Department at Columbia University, where she is a professor of sociology and gender studies. We're talking about her book, The Social Life of DNA, Race, Reparations, and Reconciliation After the Genome. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Alondra Nelson, the Middle Passage, can you define that for us? The Middle Passage is a historical term that's used to describe, and very broad terms, the forced migration anywhere from 3 to 14 million or 40 million, depending on, on who you ask, millions of Africans from the continent of Africa to the Americas, the United States, the Caribbean, Brazil, as commodity, as property, as part of the slave trade. People lose, in the process of the Middle Passage, their specific communities, language, and sometimes cultural ways, as well as members of their immediate family. That's not to say that there wasn't and hasn't been and continues to be a rich African-American culture, and that's not to say that there are these what are called retentions. There's linguistic retentions, there's retentions and food and dance that sort of persist over the last 300, 400 years. So we know in the Carolina Low country, there are the Geechee and Gullah communities that share food with people in Sierra Leone, that share words and still linguistic ties with people in contemporary Sierra Leone. So some of these ties persist over time. But for, I think, the vast majority of African Americans, that's not the case. And we know that African American culture is very dynamic and resilient and has brought us unique political culture in the United States, musical culture that certainly has African elements, but is something that emerges here in the United States, um, ways of seeing in the world, ways of being. So it's not to say that new rich forms of being weren't created and the absence or the loss of these ethnic identities that were one outcome of Middle Passage. At the same time, I came to understand in the course of speaking with people that they felt like they had the right to know about earlier ties and earlier ways of being if there was a way to try to access them. Alondra Nelson, in your work, have you had the opportunity and can you share with us what you see among uh, people who have had their genetic uh, body analyzed and find a kinship with people of like background? Yes, I see a range of things that range from one's individual response and individual interactions to bigger social historical issues, and I'll say a little bit about those. Part of my first interactions in doing this work with people were people telling me all my life I've wanted to know what my African roots were. Unsurprisingly, it can be the experience of getting genetic ancestry testing that give you some insight into that can be very emotional for people and in some cases can be quite transformative. I write about and and talk about people who the test results become an occasion for them to get to know people in their local communities that they might not have known otherwise. Uh, One gentleman I write about gets tested and gets an inference to a community in Angola and it makes him wake up to the fact that he's been sitting in a course, a college course, with a woman who's an immigrant from Angola. 
and the test results become the occasion for them to become friends. And at one point, there's an Angolan Independence Day celebration, and she invites him to attend, and he comes with some of his immediate nuclear family members, and they're really invited into this community of Angolan expatriates and are told, in fact, at this event to dance for their homelands. There are also people who immediately decide that they want to travel to the country or the community to which they've been linked. There are people who make efforts to get various forms of identity or identification in these communities. So countries like Ghana and Cameroon are, as part of their tourism industry, are looking at the possibility of offering diaspora passports or diaspora visas to people of African descent, and this may or may not be based on genetic analysis. We know that the actor Isaiah Washington now has dual citizenship in Sierra Leone through mitochondrial DNA analysis affiliated with a group in Sierra Leone. And so he received test results in 2004, and by 2010, he had um, a Sierra Leonean passport and has been doing lots of philanthropy there. So the emotional bonds can run from interpersonal bonds that sort of stay in your community to transnational diaspora relationships and identities that transform and can even result in dual citizenship. Currently, there is litigation in the United States about reparations for people whose ancestors were slaves. And I'd like you to discuss that, and in particular, the case that Professor Farmer Pellman brought against the international corporation uh, Fleet Boston. So in 2002, Deidre Farmer Pellman, a young law student, was the lead plaintiff in a class action suit for reparations for slavery that was filed against Fleet Boston and actually about 18 other multinational corporations exist that still exist today and that existed in some form, sometimes with the same name, like Lloyd's of London, sometimes not, during the slave trade and that profited from the slave trade and exists today on the cornerstone of those profits that were made during the slave trade. And these can be profits that were made from insuring enslaved people as property on behalf of slaveholders in profits that were made by transporting Um, enslaved people across the country on trains that are owned by what is now CSX, these sorts of things. And, you know, what's interesting is this case takes place in 2002. Genetic ancestry testing analysis only begins to emerge in the United States a year or two before this. And the reparation struggle has been a longstanding struggle. It goes back several centuries in the United States. And It's fascinating to me that within, you know, a year or so of the introduction of this new technology, that in this class action suit, the plaintiffs saw this technology as a strategy that they might use to advance their case, their cause, their claims for reparations. So at one point in the case, which is now stalled, the court responds to um, the defendants in the case, the corporate defendants, who sort of say that the plaintiffs don't have standing, that they can't prove that they are the descendants of particular slaves and that they should be the ones who can bring this case to court. And uh, what happens is that the plaintiffs regroup and they go to the genetic ancestry testing company, African Ancestry, and they purchase ancestry tests and they introduce these as evidence in the case. And what they're introducing as evidence is an inference that one of them, for example, was inferred to be related to contemporary people in the Niger, another in Gambia, another in Nigeria, as evidence that they have specific 
African roots, specific African ethnicities that are more specific than the identity African-American, which is a large swath racial identity. And so this strikes me as a very interesting way uh, in which the desire for identity and for a pre-Middle Passage identity really plays out on a kind of world historical scale with regard to a longstanding issue around race and reconciliation and healing and a really just for reckoning with the history of racial slavery in this country and the fact that unpaid labor was used for profit and gain. Where is this case being litigated? It's no longer being litigated. So it winded in and out of the courts from 2002 until about 2006. And uh, it was in this last narrower case dismissed without prejudice so they could bring back certain aspects of the case. But effectively, the court said that the genetic test evidence that was introduced was still not specific enough to move forward. So the genetic evidence is not going to be successful in moving this forward. And when last I spoke to the lead plaintiff, Deidre Farmer-Palman, she said that they don't have enough resources to continue this. An appellate court in Chicago is where the case was last playing out, and this is the court that includes the conservative intellectual Richard, Judge Richard Posner, among other people. Well, Professor Alondra Nelson, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask some questions about you. And one in particular is an aha or eureka moment that uh, focused or changed your life or gave you a concept that there's something else out there you want to explore. I think one of these moments, and I feel that I've, I've had a lot, uh, many of these, these moments, these crossroad moments or aha moments, but one of them certainly was the, when I completed the first draft of my, of my first book um, on the Black Panther's health activism, which I had the pleasure of speaking with you about several years ago. And it was partly about completing the book itself, which is a great accomplishment, but it was also because I think part of me was never, ever quite convinced that I could finish it. Being able to finish it actually opened up the possibility that my life could be a long-term project. The book is the aha moment, you know, the first draft of that first book. But what the lesson is for me is that there are journeys and things that we want to do in life, some of which offer no immediate gratification whatsoever, and some of which may never offer any kind of material or public gratification, but are things that offer meaning and are journeys that are, are worth taking. And what would you like to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life? It is One Precious Life. I want to uh, spend time with love, be with the people who are important in my life, um, and really prioritize those. You know, I spend a lot of time each day trying to get that right. As a writer and as a thinker, I want to continue to tell unexpected stories about people of African descent in the U.S. and elsewhere, and also to tell uh, more broadly unexpected stories about how technology and science shape our world um, in ways that are both detrimental and sometimes surprising. And finally, Alondra Nelson, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? I would like to recommend a book to your listeners called Come Out Swinging. It came out in 2013, and it's uh, by a woman named Lucia Trimbor, T-R-I-M-B-U-R. It's a fascinating book. It's a book that tells us about gentrification in Brooklyn. On the face of it, 
about a, a famous boxing gym in Brooklyn called Gleason's Gym. And uh, the subtitle of the book is The Changing World of Boxing and Gleason's Gym. But it's really a book about change in a city, and it's a book about how people in dense cities learn to, through sport and through the small space of the gym, to dwell together, to be together, and how sport and boxing becomes a kind of bodily language that they use to deal with economic inequality, racial inequality. There are both men and women in the gym, and the way that the gym is changing as a place that goes from not only training amateur and professional boxers, but also young professionals on Wall Street and elsewhere who are coming into the space of the gym. So it's just a really fascinating story, um, a fascinating book, and it's a wonderful example of how we can look at a small social world like a boxing gym and how it just yields so many fascinating stories about how people try to, to live their best lives. Well, Alondra Nelson, thank you so much for being with us on Radio Curious. It was a pleasure, Barry. Thank you. Professor Alondra Nelson is the author of The Social Life of DNA, Race, Reparations, and Reconciliation After the Genome. She's the Dean of Social Science and a Professor of Sociology and Gender Studies at Columbia University in New York City. The book that Professor Nelson recommends is Coming Out Swinging by Lucia Trimber. This program was recorded on February 19th, 2016. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. And the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Christina Onestead, and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>